This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of every kind here on this show, from sports to the arts to history, and periodically we tell stories about faith. And my goodness, today's story is about one man who changed the world 500 years ago. It was a protest born in a thunderstorm and proclaimed with a nail. The movement spreads faster than anything before it, thanks to the newest technology and oldest truths. The origin of this conflict flowed from a deceptively simple question, a riddle of sorts that Martin Luther had wrestled with for years. The question is this, am I a good person? Even children understand the difference between good and evil, regardless of age, Almost everyone has recognized some time where they have strayed from the good and toward the bad. The natural response is to work a bit harder and hope that one's good deeds outweigh the bad. It follows that if there is a heaven, most people assume they'll get in because they believe they've been good enough to earn this reward. To Martin Luther, being good enough for God made no sense at all. Here's Cardinal Timothy Dolan, the Roman Catholic Archbishop of New York. What was his struggle? His struggle was, in a way, the same thing we all are going through. How do I get God's love? How do I get salvation? How can I, a big, ugly, wretched sinner, be saved? Here's theologian James Corthals. The very fact that we're still talking about it 500 years after the fact says that Luther was onto something. Here's Harvard Divinity School professor Mark Edwards. There are very few cases where you have one individual standing literally before the arrayed might of the world and saying, nope, I won't back down. Martin Luther's unbending courage leave him with these thoughts by the end of his life. I hold that there has been nobody in a thousand years whom the world hated as much as me. May our Lord God come soon and quickly take me away. I shall gladly stretch out my neck so he can strike me to the ground with a thunderclap. Amen. Born in Eisleben in northern Germany on November 10th, 1483, Martin Luther grows up in a devout Roman Catholic home where he embraces the church and serves as an altar boy and sings in the choir. His father Hans, a stern and hard-working miner, wants for his son a life outside the mines. He grooms him to become a lawyer. Luther is an exceptional student with a formidable mind that thrives on study and analysis. He earns his bachelor's and master's degrees in a record time. All that remains is to take his final course in law. Suddenly, in 1505, the certainties of the 23-year-old's life are shattered when he is caught in a massive thunderstorm. A thunderbolt strikes nearby, throwing him to the ground. Fearing for his life and his eternal salvation, he cries out to Saint Anne, the patroness of miners, Help me, and I will become a monk. Here's historian Miri Rubin and theologian Alistair McGrath. 
the close experience of death itself really makes you think, what state is my soul in? <laughs> you know, what is the balance here? You know, we're talking almost a sort of spiritual accountancy. Where am I situated? What is the balance? Had I died just now, had my invocation not worked, where would I have ended up? In sin. thunderbolt in effect marked our two paths he could go down the path his father wanted him to go down or he could go down a path which in his own unconscious reflections he was beginning to feel that he ought to go down Luther writes man must first cry out that he sees no hope in this disturbance salvation begins when man believes himself to be utterly lost, the light breaks. Luther is spared, and within weeks and much to his father's dismay, he casts off law school and joins the strictest of monastic orders, the Aramite Augustinians, the very heart of the Catholic Church. Luther is given a tonsure haircut and is covered in a robe, the only piece of clothing he now owns. He plunges into prayer, fasting, and ascetic practices, going without sleep, enduring bone-chilling cold without a blanket, and flagellating himself. Here's theologian Ewan Cameron. One of the things they're trying to do is to imitate the sufferings of Christ, to be what is called an ascetic, to believe that by... Uh, dominating your fleshly desires by no longer needing food, sexual companionship, the comforts of life. You are identifying yourself with Christ in the wilderness, that you are battling with the forces of evil in yourself by battling with your own lower nature. If ever a monk should have got to heaven by his monkery, then it was I. If I'd kept on any longer, then I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. Here's theologian Michael Mullet. Everything that Luther did throughout his life, Luther did uh, to, to the brim. L Luther did everything, 100%, 110%. And when Luther was in the mood to be a monk, you know, he, he gives it his all. He gives it his every shot. Good monk. Here's Luther describing this moment in time followed by Cardinal Dolan and Luther biographer Paul Robinson. I was myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God. I hated him. A monk that was driven, that was able to sleep because he's saying, uh, am, I, am I doing everything Am I doing everything that the church requires? Am I obeying all the rules of my religious orders, the Augustinian? Uh-oh, am I, am I, have, have I said the right prayers? Uh-oh, uh I, I better do this or I'm going to hell. His problem was that he didn't believe any of what he was doing as a monk was really helping him to escape God's judgment. And when we come back, we continue the story of Martin Luther, the monk who changed the world. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we return where we left off with Luther struggling to escape God's wrath. Luther understands that the Roman Catholic Church's rite of confession is designed to bring relief to those burdened with guilt. Here's Cardinal Dolan, Truman, and Luther biographers Mary Jane Hamig and Susan Nunn. He went to confession. He repented. He atoned. And it still dawned on him, but I don't feel saved. I don't feel happy. I'm not at peace. I'm still agonizing. I feel unable to earn and achieve God's love, mercy, and salvation. This is the angst that he had. We have accounts of him leaving the confessional uh, after several hours of pedantically cataloging everything he'd done wrong and then him going straight back in again because he'd forgotten something. One has to feel sorry, I think, for the person he was confessing to. It was a, a full-time job. At one point, his confessor told him to go away and come back when he had something really important to confess. <laughs> Luther was different from other monks in that he dearly cared about being reconciled to the Heavenly Father and doing what God willed him to do. And we can see his quest, his agonizing, his deep seriousness. We hope that he's going to find some resolution, otherwise he's going to lead a tormented life. Despite his internal struggles, Luther advances and is ordained as a priest. For five years, Luther labors without relief. Then, in 1510, his friends in the monastery send him on a mission to Rome, one of the church's greatest pilgrimages. It takes Luther two months to walk 800 miles south across the Alps to Rome. Luther arrives in Rome just as the Renaissance is reaching its height. Michelangelo is painting the ceilings of the Sistine Chapel. Raphael is hard at work decorating the Pope's private apartments. Luther expects a deeply reverent city, reflecting wise and pious leaders. What he gets instead is disillusionment. No one in Rome seems to take God very seriously. I think the disappointment in Rome must have been just absolutely devastating. Here was something which I think he was still open to find as a sort of elevating experience, to go to the pinnacle of the institution that in different ways he has become servant of. And yet finding that, in a way, nobody speaks his language and in more ways than one. Luther wants a spiritual experience. For a fee, he is allowed to enter the catacomb that holds the remains of 46 popes and 80,000 martyrs' bones. This will earn him what is called an indulgence. Well, the practice of selling indulgences emerges in the 15th century when the church ties together uh, its understanding of, of purgatory, this place between heaven and hell where most people go after they die in order to be purged of their remaining sin and made fit for heaven. And that doctrine was tied together with that of the treasury of merits, this, for want of a better term, heavenly bank account where all of the extra good works of the saints uh, have been deposited. What the church allowed for was the transfer of the good works from the treasury of merits, if you like, to the, the accounts of other people by payment of a certain amount of money and the provision of a certificate, a paper certificate, by the church. So by the time we get to the beginning of the 16th century, this is an established practice. It's a way of the church earning money. And in terms of how it impacts popular piety, clearly 
Luther perceived that this had led people to think they could more or less buy their way into heaven, that for a cash transaction you could have your sins dealt with in a way that bypassed the, the, the quality of the heart, bypassed the need for repentance. Here's Catholic Archbishop Dolan. One of the external reasons and contributing factors to the success of the Protestant Reformation, everybody knows was namely the the corruption at the time of the Catholic Church, which we can't deny. In 1511, Luther's order sends him to a smaller monastery in the tiny town of Wittenberg. Here, the monk Johann von Staupitz takes Luther under his wing and is determined to release Luther from his cycle of despair. Staupitz announces to Luther that he has made him professor of biblical studies to the newly founded Wittenberg University, forcing him to look after the spiritual needs of others rather than simply raging against himself. I think Staupitz knew very well how to handle Luther with a combination of sympathy, gentle mockery, gentle mockery, and above all, I think, by um, seeing his gifts, seeing his brilliance and his capacity for an academic career, Staupitz, I think, is saying, we've got to get him to that state where at night, instead of going through the dark night of the soul, he's so shattered from preparing lectures that he just collapses and sleeps soundly like a baby for eight hours. Staupitz's instincts will prove astonishingly accurate. Luther throws himself into his work, studying not only the standard Latin text of the church, but also reading them in the original Greek and Hebrew. As he reads notes and reasons his way through his faith, Luther is struck by a building revelation, a revelation that questions everything he has been taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Luther had been brought up to believe that the person who was saved is the person who went out and achieved salvation. He now began to realize that to receive salvation, you simply put out your empty, open hands and receive this gift which God wanted you to receive. So what Luther is saying is that you don't need the institution of the church. You don't need the intercession of priests. You don't need these great papal ceremonies to get to heaven. This whole thing is not about you and the church. It's about you and God. Here's theologian R.C. Sproul. Luther's... uh study in scripture paved the way for a new understanding or a fresh understanding of how the Bible is to be interpreted. But one of the big issues was his view of private interpretation. Let me just take a second. With the privilege of interpreting the Bible for yourself, it also carried the responsibility of interpreting it accurately. But what he challenged was the unique sense in which the church claimed that it and it alone had the right to interpret the scripture. And as this uh, statement in in Trent says, that it condemns anybody who presumes to interpret the scripture contrary to how it was done by Holy Mother Church. Around this time of secret revelation, Luther goes public, nailing his document 95 stinging bullet points or theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church on All Hallows' Eve, October 31st, 
1517. But Luther's letter evokes indifference. The entire Reformation might have ended right here except for a new invention that recently arrived in Wittenberg. Luther is about to become the author of an accidental bestseller thanks to another German named Gutenberg, who, less than 70 years earlier, invents the world's first printing press, an invention that enables the mass production of ideas, the world's first social media platform. The 95 Theses were written by Luther in Latin, and that's a key point because when he attached them to the church door at Wittenberg, he wasn't doing violence to the church. That was the bulletin board where announcements were made and invitations were given to the faculty for academic discussions among themselves. And so what Luther was proposing was a serious scholarly discussion about the whole structure of the indulgence system. What happened, without Luther's permission and without his knowledge, some students saw the, the 95 Theses, translated them into German, made it, took advantage of the printing press, and within two weeks, they were in every village and every hamlet throughout Germany. Here's theologians Robert Kolb, Stephen Nichols, and Robert Godfrey. There were uh, four printers who recognized that these 95 Theses were dynamite. They printed them, and the world's not been the same since. In many ways, it was the beginnings of the modern world, the move from that medieval era into the modern age. We, we speak of the Renaissance, and we credit the Renaissance with this, but there was something to that singular moment of the posting of the 95 Theses that not only changed church history, this changed world history for the centuries to come. And when we come back, we continue with the story of Martin Luther, the monk who changed the world. And go to ouramericannetwork.org and subscribe to our newsletter. Give us your email address. We'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. continue with Martin Luther's story and he's just nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. And what was particularly radical in the 95 theses was his criticism of the Pope who had extended the indulgences to the dead as well as to the living, which was a practice less than 50 years old in the life of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther, who had been really quite an unknown figure up till that point, suddenly became a famous figure. And people began to talk about the possibility that the church might be wrong on certain issues and that the church might need to be reformed on certain issues. Before long, his work spread throughout the Holy Roman Empire and into the heart of the Vatican itself. Priests, bishops, or popes are not superior to other Christians. 
A cobbler, a smith, a farmer, each has the work of his trade, like priests and bishops, and every one must benefit and serve every other. Here's Luther biographers Mark Tranvik and Mary Jane Hemming and theologian Richard Perry. And so Luther's views on this were radical. They revolutionized society. When we look to Luther, he is valuing all vocations, all things that people do, that they have importance. So a maid who cleaned a room was not simply cleaning a room. She was doing God's work. He said the, uh, the farmer out in the field pitching dung is doing a greater work for God than the monk in a monastery praying for his own salvation. Luther is the one who has said it is the attitude with which you pursue your calling that makes it godly and holy, not the calling itself. My favorite response from the Catholic Church to Luther's posting of the 95 Theses was Pope Leo X's first response. When a copy of the Theses finally made its way to him down in the Vatican, Leo X quips, Ah, the ramblings of a drunken German monk. He'll think differently when he sobers up. I think Leo X significantly underestimated what he was dealing with in this German monk. And on the one hand, Luther never sobered up. Although Luther has no desire to start a revolution, thinking his 95 theses will help the Catholic Church, not divide it, in November 1518, Luther is summoned to Augsburg to appear before an assembly and defend his 95 theses. This is an issue at the heart of faith. It has to be brought out into the open. It is summoning other minds and those who would dare defend these practices or abuses to come out and to show their proof. Of course, for him, scripture is the basis for discussion. Scripture and clear reason. As for the Pope's decree on indulgences, I say that neither the Church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. Three days of debate proved fruitless. The Catholic Church defends their practice of issuing and selling indulgences, and Luther refuses to recant and returns to Wittenberg, where he goes on a writing spree, churning out some of the most significant works of his career, bestsellers that are the talk of Europe. Let the lazy and sleepy Christians buy indulgences. You run from them. There was one singular movement, and it ended with that decisive action of excommunicating Luther. And we need to remember what this means. This is a moment in time when to be outside of the church meant that you are outside of salvation. The church at this time believed that it held the keys to the kingdom. Literally, when Christ said to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, that was taken as Christ's giving of the keys of heaven to Peter. And then as Roman doctrine understands it through apostolic succession, Leo X was now the holder of the keys. And that decision to excommunicate Luther meant nothing short of saying, we are condemning you, we are saying that your soul is damned to hell. That was the result of the 95 Theses. That's how the church fundamentally responded to Luther. How did Luther respond? Well, you're not the true church. 
you've abandoned your calling as the church. The true church is the church that preaches the Word of God, that preaches the gospel. In 1520, the church excommunicates Luther and burns the first victims of his heresy, his books. Luther responds by burning the Pope's bull of excommunication. Because you have corrupted God's truth, may God destroy you in this fire. I am not afraid, and I rejoice to suffer in so noble a cause. In burning the bull of excommunication, he is, in fact, saying, I will not give in. I am right. You are wrong. Come and get me. When Pope Leo hears that Luther burned the bull of excommunication, he demands that Luther appear before him. Luther braces himself for one final showdown with the powers of the Holy Roman Empire at the Diet of Worms in 1521, Diet meaning Imperial Assembly, held in the German city of Worms. For, as I declared, if the Emperor was inviting me in order for me to recant, then I would never go. But if he was inviting me to my death, then I would gladly come. When Luther arrived, the crowds came out to gawk and cheer, and one of the papal representatives reported back to Rome that nine out of ten people were yelling, long live Luther. And lest the Pope take any satisfaction, the tenth was yelling, death to the Pope. And uh, Luther went into it with a measure of fear and trembling, uh, knowing how serious it was when he walked into the uh, audience chamber before the emperor, the Spanish guards at the door uh, muttered to him, to the flames, to the flames. So everybody knew what was at stake here. He, he enters in and there are his books, a number of books by this time, piled on a table. And uh, uh, the representative of the emperor points to the books and says, are these your books? And, and Luther says, yes, they are. And he says, will you now recant of the errors in them? Well, Luther was distressed because he really was looking forward to the possibility of defending his views. So trying to buy time, he says, uh, well, um, will you give me a list of the errors in my books that I'm to recant of? Well, they were ready for that. They knew he was clever and they weren't going to get into a debate with him what were and what weren't errors. So they said, well, you're a professor of theology. You know what your errors are and you must recant them. And um, Luther then made the less famous speech at Worms where he said, can I have 24 hours to think it over? And um, uh, they granted him time to do that. Now, uh, why did he want that time? Well, I think it's a, it's a very important window into Luther's mind and heart and soul. Uh, he knew how serious this was, and he knew, as his critics had said to him, that he before God would have to answer the question, are you alone wise? And for a medieval man, this was a very troubling question. They were not rugged individualists. They really believed in community. And, and Luther wrestled in prayer with that question, am I the only one who's wise? And what his conclusion was, I am not doing this because I think I'm wise. Uh, I am doing this because I'm driven to it by the Word of God. Um, I feel this is the only way I can read the Word, word of God or that anyone could read the Word of God. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, 
which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. This I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. And when we come back, the final installment of this hour-long treatment of Martin Luther, the monk who changed the world. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and where we left off with Luther he was defending himself against the might of the Roman Catholic Church let's continue the story Luther's statement really marks the dawn of a new era the era of the ordinary person standing up against authority and saying I'm sorry this is what I believe my conscience tells me this I can't do anything else That, I think, is a defining moment in the emergence of our modern understanding of personal and institutional freedom. This moment in Worms is very powerful. It's a time when a man stood up and spoke the truth and spoke for the truth and spoke for liberty of conscience. And we see him, therefore, as a monument to liberty of conscience. It's one of these grand gestures where an individual stands for something much larger than himself. Europe's most successful author is declared a heretic by Leo X and vilified by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Luther goes into hiding and becomes more bold in his writings. He wrote very well. In fact, he wrote very wittily. In fact, he wrote very rudely. And many people find themselves, you know, fascinated by this man who would use such crude language when arguing with the Pope and with the Church. The Pope should stand up like the stinking sinner he is. If Rome is not a brothel above all brothels, one can imagine, then I do not know what brothel means. He is an incredible writer. He uses earthy, ordinary language. Uh, he's just fun to read out loud. Uh, he's sarcastic, he's witty, uh, he's profound. I say that neither Pope, nor Bishop, nor any ordained man has the right to impose one syllable of law upon the Christian man. For all of the faithful are God's priests. It redefines the relationship between an individual and God uh, in profound ways because it takes the middleman out. It's like they control the pipes uh, uh, that bring water into your house and suddenly you, you can drill your own well. Uh, you're no longer dependent upon the uh, waterworks of the church. Their purpose no longer clear, monks and nuns begin leaving their monasteries and convents. 
priests abandon church law and get married to live the lives of their congregation. It is an unstoppable rebellion spreading from the grassroots up. Because the church was so wrapped up in the social conditions of life and the organization of society, the overturning of the status of the church could not fail to have important consequences for society communities are able completely to reorganize themselves without reference to these big international structures of the church. And communities across Germany and then across the rest of Europe take hold of issues like social discipline, like the relief of the poor, like public education, and they decide, no, hang on, we don't need to take a lot of other people on board with us. We're just going to decide this at local level and establish local rules for this. Luther begins translating the New Testament into the language of the people. The German translation makes the word of God accessible to the common man for the very first time. Here, in exile, his desire for moral reformation within the Roman Catholic Church morphs into revolution, the establishment of a new church. After Luther wrote the 95 Theses, he wrote another text called Explanations of the 95 Theses. And those are paragraph expansions on each of the 95 Theses. And in the first expansion of the first thesis, Luther references the Greek text and the Greek word for repent. Of course, the Greek word for repent is the word metanoia. We get from this the idea of a change of mind. So you do a 180 is the idea of a repentance. This is how the Latin Vulgate translated that Greek word. It translated it as penitentium agitae. And what that is best translated or directly translated as is do penance. Well, there's a world of difference between do penance and the intention behind the Greek word metanoia. And Luther saw it. Remember, it was just in 1516 that we have the publication of the Greek text through the scholar Erasmus's work at the town of Basel. And one of those copies made its way into Luther's hands. And there's no accident here of history. Luther is reading the Greek text in 1516, and a year later he's posting the 95 Theses. It was so scandalous because in the day of the Reformation, in the centuries preceding, the church stood in a posture of authority over the Bible. Uh, the Pope became the chief interpreter of the Bible. And what was so scandalous about the Reformation is that the Reformers, chief of whom was Luther, asserted that the Bible is over the church, that the Bible commands and directs the church, not the other way around. So that's what really was the heart of the Reformation. It was a crisis of authority in the church. The Martin Luther of the early days of the Reformation possesses a more congenial spirit in debate, but he is rarely ever gracious towards the defenders of Rome. After all, he sees himself in an epic battle for souls. Here's theologians Jane Stroll and Carl Truman. He's certainly one of those personalities that's sort of bigger than life. Sometimes, at least when I read him, and others may disagree about this, but I'm like... Good Lord, what must it be like to be so sure you're right? Had he not been an arrogant, stubborn, bombastic, bullheaded figure, he would not have been able to oppose the church corruption in the way that he did. One of the 
harder things for moderns to understand is that in the 16th century, there was absolutely no notion of denominationalism. Uh, for centuries, probably almost from its beginning, uh, the church had thought about the church as either the true church or false churches. You know, today, um, I'm a Presbyterian, you're a Baptist, somebody else is a Lutheran, and we have differences. We may even see some of our differences as important, but we regard one another as Christians. That was not the case uh, through most of the history of the church. You were in either in the one true church or you were part of a false church. And um, Luther initially hoped very much to be a positive reforming influence in what he saw as the one true church. But when it became more and more obvious that the Roman church would not listen to him, would not reform itself, uh, Luther's conclusion was Rome is establishing itself as a false church. Now, Luther and all the reformers believed there were true Christians in the Roman church that still held to the gospel. But they believed they could say that the Roman church was a false church because its official teachers had rejected the gospel. This moment known as Protestantism sweeps across Europe. But in every place it takes a different form. Henry VIII's Church of England and Calvinism in Switzerland are just a couple of the dozen branches of early Protestantism. And then, in the newly discovered territory of America, a group of Calvinists called Puritans leave Europe for the New World. They will be followed by the Pilgrim Fathers a century later. These Protestants will found a nation on Luther's principles of religious freedom. But Luther will never leave Germany. He marries an ex-nun named Catherine, and they have six children together. It seems hypocritical for him to avoid marriage because he has long condemned vows of chastity. Here's historian Mary Hanks and Jane Stroll. He also says, by vowing chastity, we're trying to counteract something that's in our basic human nature, and we can't do that. He doesn't exclude celibacy by any means, and he does see this as a special gift. But that's his point. It's a special gift. You can't decide to be celibate. Luther will finally die of a heart attack on February 18, 1546, at the age of 62. He is buried beneath the pulpit in the Castle Church at Wittenberg. In an era where it is illegal for a man to will his estate to his wife, Luther to no one's surprise, did it anyway. In 1934, a black pastor from Georgia sails across the Atlantic Ocean to Berlin to attend an international conference of Baptist pastors. While in Germany, this man, whose name is Michael King, becomes so impressed with what he learns about the reformer Martin Luther that he decides to do something dramatic. He offers the ultimate tribute to the man's memory by changing his own name to Martin Luther King. His five-year-old son is also named Michael. So, not long after, he decides to change his son's name too, and Michael King Jr. becomes known to the world as Martin Luther King Jr. A mighty fortress is our guide. Despite its initial repudiation of Luther's Reformation, the Catholic Church will eventually adopt many Luther-like positions. The native tongue will replace Latin in the Catholic Mass, personal Bible reading will be encouraged, and Catholic hymnals will eventually include Luther's signature hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And on earth is not his equal. 
Luther so altered the landscape of the modern world that much of what we now take for granted may be traced directly to him, one of the greatest emancipators in human history. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And if we in our own strength can fight, then our striving would be We're not the right men on our side We're the men of God's own choosing You ask who that may be Christ Jesus, it is He The Lord of... This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating Memorial Day, America's most sacred secular holiday. It happens sometimes. You hear a story so beautiful and sad, so filled with love and grief, it makes you want to cry. It happened to me in late May of 2011 on Memorial Day. There was an interview on the radio with the father of a fallen soldier, on a show called Here and Now. His name was Paul Monty. His son Jared was killed in action in Afghanistan in 2006 while trying to save the life of a fellow soldier. Jared received posthumously America's highest honor for heroism, the Medal of Honor. It was small consolation to his father. The son he loved was gone forever. Monty was being interviewed because he was on a mission It turns out that on the Veterans Day after his son was killed, he tried to place a flag near his son's grave at National Massachusetts Cemetery on Cape Cod. Officials said he couldn't. The grave markers are flushed to the ground, he was told, and flags would make it difficult to cut the grass. Monty fought that cold, bureaucratic answer, and he fought it hard. He got the rule changed and started an organization called Operation Flags for Vets. And on the day he was being interviewed, he'd enlisted over 1,000 volunteers to plant flags at not just his son's grave, but the 55,000-plus graves at that national cemetery. Monty went on to tell some stories about his son, Jared, and how he always was helping other people, especially those less fortunate than himself. Monty then nearly choked up telling this story about his son. It was always the underdog that he stood up for. And uh, just everything was done quietly, though. It was, uh, you know, another as he was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, he and two other buddies got a place together. And they went out and they furnished it. And one day the two guys came home and the kitchen set was missing. And Jared went home and they started Jared look the kitchen set's gone where is it Jared said well I was over one of my soldiers houses today and his kids were eating on the floor so I figured they needed the kitchen set more than we did so so the $700 kitchen set disappeared (laughs) that's what he did he was he was like Robin Hood his dad talked about how his son hated any kind of attention 
for his good deeds. Jared never liked any kind of notoriety at all. Um, all his medals went in a sock drawer. No one ever saw them. Um, he never wanted to stand out. Then Monty talked about his son's truck. It turns out he still had it, and he still drove it. Ah, uh, what can I tell you? It's just, it's him. It's got his DNA all over it. Um, I just, I love driving it because it reminds me of him, though I don't need the truck to remind me of him. I think about him every hour of every day. And that truck was a Dodge 4x4 Ram 1500 with decals on it that included the 10th Mountain Division, the 82nd Airborne, an American flag, and a Go Army decal. And as the details piled up, I found myself sitting in my car in a Walmart parking lot on a sunny Memorial Day in my own hometown, crying hard, crying like a child, crying as if I'd lost my child. I was also crying because I remember my own mom telling me about the day she found out her brother was killed in World War II. This was back before there were support groups for such things, before we even knew what PTSD was, before anyone dared to talk about war and the grief and carnage it left behind. It was the summer of 1944, and she remembered a black government car pulling up to her apartment building in West New York, New Jersey. The officers stepped out of the car and walked up the stairs. A dozen or so families lived in that apartment building, and several had sons, brothers, or fathers who'd volunteered to fight in World War II. Her brother John was one of them. He volunteered when he was just 18 years old. She told me she felt terrible praying that it would be someone else's door those men would knock on. Then she heard the footsteps stop in front of her door. Then she heard the knock on her door. She was 13 and remembered that moment like none other in her life. She told me she had never heard her mom cry so hard and that she remembered her dad not crying at all. What she did remember was that she never again saw him enjoy life. He'd lost his only son. But back to Paul Monty's story about his son. It turns out I wasn't the only one in the car crying that day. Nashville songwriter Connie Harrington was in her car, too, listening to the same story. Moved to tears, she pulled over and scribbled some notes. I'm in the car, and uh, I keep a little stack of Post-it notes, and I begin to write the details of the truck. Um, while I'm driving, I know, I'm crying and driving on trying not to run off the road. I scribbled down, you know, that he said it burns a lot of gas, but he didn't care. He drove it anyway. Uh, he said he, he hasn't cleaned the truck up, <laughs> and uh, people get on to him for that. But it's you'd kind of want to have their things the way they were. When she got home, she couldn't get the story out of her head so she did what writers do and turned the words of that grieving father into a song. And when we come back, we're going to tell you the story of I Drive Your Truck and how it became a song, and we're going to play that song. Our special Memorial Day celebration for any family out there who's had a loss in their life to a war. This is a celebration, a memorial in honor of their loss, your grief, this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Paul and Jared Monty and the story of a song, I Drive Your Truck. We had just heard from Connie Harrington. She enlisted a couple of male writers. She said, look, a woman just can't hear this one right, and she was right. And the three of them together finished this song called I Drive Your Truck and got it into the hands of the management of Lee Bryce, the singer, who recorded it. I Drive Your Truck ended up becoming the song of the year in 2013 at the CMAs. The YouTube video, which I would urge you to watch, has almost 30 million views. But this remarkable story didn't end there. It turns out that Paul Monty got a message from a woman whose son had died in the same battle Jared had. She sent me a message that she'd heard the song, Monty told the reporter, and that I had to listen to it. She knew I drove Jared's truck, and she drove her son's truck. We were a little bit of a club. Monty told the reporter he remembered not being able to get through the entire song. Quote, I'd get into it a few bars or so and I kind of welled up, he explained. But he still didn't know that it was his interview that inspired the song. Meanwhile, Harrington was doing everything she could to track down Monty and let him know he was the song's inspiration. After many hours and days searching on the web, she got his phone number. Soon after, Monty flew to Nashville to meet the people who wrote that song and celebrate its success. I Drive Your Truck captures a father's grief with a kind of emotional honesty and detail that's made country music America's music. Here are the opening lyrics. Eighty-nine cents in the ashtray Half-empty bottle of Gatorade Rolling in the floorboard That dirty Braves cap on the dash Dog tags hanging from the rear view Old skull can and cowboy boots And a gold army shirt Folded in the back This thing burns gas like crazy But that's alright People got their ways of coping Oh, and I got mine I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find a field I tear it up Till all the pain's a cloud of dust Yes, sometimes I drive your truck And isn't that what art can do? These different parents holding on to the things they hold on to, driving a truck, holding on to a boot, a dog tag, whatever it might be. What this song didn't describe is how Paul Monty's son lost his life. In June 2006, Jared's patrol came under fire from 50 enemy fighters. One of the soldiers who served under him was wounded. He needed help. Despite a blistering firefight, Jared responded to the call not once or twice, but three times. It was that last try that got him killed. His father explained that his son was the kind of man who never gave up 
on people and always, always tried to do the right thing. Quote, The right thing was trying to save this young private who was alone, out in the open, injured, and calling out for help, his dad told reporters. Paul Monty then described the grief, what he felt, why he held on to the truck, the mementos, and everything else. People tell you time heals all. Well, in this case, it doesn't. Losing a parent is one thing. That's your past. But losing a child, you've lost your future. You don't have those grandkids to look forward to and those those special days of going to the ballpark together or going fishing. All of that that you envisioned is gone. It's gone. When you lose your child, you lose the future. The grief Monty felt well, it, it's never going to go away, and he'll drive that truck for as long as it runs, probably longer. The last verse of the song, it says it all. The words are, I've cussed, I've prayed, I've said goodbye, I've shook my fist and asked God why. These days when I'm missing you this much, I drive your truck. So on Memorial Day, the most sacred of all of our secular holidays, gather your family around the smart TV or computer screen and watch the Lee Bryce video, I Drive Your Truck. Again, over 30 million views. Cry a little bit, cry a lot, and then reach out to a soldier or the parent of a soldier. Thank them, honor them for everything they've done, everything they're about to do, and just listen to them. Just listen to them. Let them tell the story. You know, in my room, in my, in my house, up on the wall is a purple heart, and it's my mother's brother's purple heart. Underneath it, a picture of a cemetery where he's buried in France. And not a lot of family members listen to my mom tell that story. I don't think they wanted to deal with the pain. I don't know that they wanted to know. I was the curious kid, and my mom would talk about it time and time again. And it was healing power for her to tell the story, because that was a brother she loved. I mean, when you'd hear her talk about him, he was the all-star. There was nothing he wasn't going to do for the family. And it was an Italian family. And an Italian family, when you lose the only son, you lose the lineage. You lose that family name forever. And that's why she told me, she says, your, your granddad's not mean, and he's not grumpy. It's just he never really recovered from losing his boy. And he could never have another son. He was too old. And you can't know what that's like when you came from where granddad came from, Lee. You can't know what that's like. And you can't. So again, those conversations, that's what Memorial Day is about, folks. It's not just hot dogs. It's not just all those other things. Go to a gravesite. We love sending our interns to the national cemeteries. We send them there, and we ask people to tell their story. And by the way, send your stories to us for next year's Memorial Day celebration. We want to hear your stories about 
fallen loved ones, about your grief, about your joys, because my goodness, you know, in the end, Paul had lots of great memories about his son. And by the way, the most important thing to do after doing all that talking, after doing all that celebrating, is to make sure to have some fun on Memorial Day too, because that's why our guys go to fight. That's why they do what they do. They want us to mourn for a bit, respect their loss, their sacrifice, their service. But in the end, they die to defend our freedoms, including the freedom to get that ice-cold beer, fire up the grill, and celebrate too. You can do both in the same day, folks. And again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We want to hear your story so we can play them next year here on Our American Stories. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And also sign up for all that we do. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. And they'll be both in audio form and in print form if what you want to do is just read them. So again, we're going to go out with the final part of the song by Lee Bryce that we've been talking about for these two segments. I Drive Your Truck, the story of a fallen soldier, a grief-stricken dad, and a hit song. And only in America does this kind of thing happen. And so let's go out to the sounds of Lee Bryce singing, I Drive Your Truck. Paul Monty's story, Jared Monty's story, so many Gold Star family stories here on Our American Stories. I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find the field I tear it up Till all the pain's a cloud of dust Yes, sometimes Brother, sometimes I drive your truck I drive your truck I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind I drive your truck This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and even public policy when it hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story. No one has more resilience or matches my practical, tactical brilliance. You want to fight for your land back? I need my right hand man back. Get your right hand man back. You know you gotta get your right hand man back. I mean, you gotta put the button to the letter, but the sooner the better to get your right hand man back. You might be asking, what the heck am I listening to? And if you've been listening closely, you might be asking, are they rapping about the founding fathers? Or you might be saying, that's one of my favorite songs. This song, Guns and Ships, was from the Broadway musical Hamilton. The surprising smash hit, given that it was a musical about a 
founding father, Alexander Hamilton, and a musical that used the genre of rap to talk about a dead white founding father at that. But come on, tell me you're at least not somewhat intrigued by this absurdity. That's got to be leading the guy on our $10 bill to be rolling in his grave. And one of the other Hamilton songs, A Farmer Refuted, shows Alexander Hamilton singing it. But surely that's not how it went down in real life. Of course, Hamilton didn't sing publicly. Most of the Founding Fathers were just a wee bit too stiff for that. No, but that's not what I mean. Hamilton didn't identify himself publicly with the words, the words that the musical used to create this song. His own words. Hamilton wrote them, but didn't sign them under his name. He made himself anonymous, specifically... He called himself, quote-unquote, an anonymous friend. Now, you might consider himself a coward for not attaching his name to it, or you might not. The year was 1774, and Alexander Hamilton, then a 17-year-old orphan born out of wedlock on a tiny Caribbean island, found himself at King's College in New York City far from home. His childhood writing landed him there. Noted for its, quote, bombastic excesses with such verve and gusto that it moved the island community to come together and collect a fund to send the young chap to the big city. And the encouragement only encouraged him to write more. I am not thrown away And how could he not? A revolution was underway. The Boston Massacre occurred four years earlier. Paul Revere and Samuel Adams, yes, that Samuel Adams that inspired the beer, helped inspire a riot against the British for taxing them without representation for them in the British Parliament. And the British shot and killed five Americans. Then one year earlier came the throwing of British tea into the ocean, the Boston Tea Party. And then that very year came the forming of a protest government to the British, the Continental Congress. And let's just say that every American wasn't gung-ho about it. At the beginning, the majority of the people were against the revolution. That's Daniel Mark Epstein, the author of The Loyal Son, the book on the greatest microcosm of America's divisions, the division of Benjamin Franklin and his own son, William. His father visited him and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries because that was his side and the family's side and William refused. And William ended up being the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion, and had to be taken away bodily, and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement with bread and water for 18 months, and suffered terribly. Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life. 
whatever side you claimed, you were staking a claim to, endangering your life. Out of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence who declared, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor on behalf of this cause, nine of them did lose their lives. 17 of them lost their fortunes, making it over a third of them who lost the first two, but none of them lost the third, their sacred honor. This reality is why one-third of Americans didn't take a side in 1776. They were just hoping to survive. And according to Brad Smith, the chairman of the Center for Competitive Politics, it likely was just one of the reasons, a very understandable one, why the 17-year-old Hamilton and many of the founding fathers wrote anonymously. But there were other reasons, too. Hamilton's very first published writing was a piece that he published under the title A Friend of America, and he was responding to arguments made by various loyalist preachers. Loyal to the British crown. In particular, Episcopalian Bishop Samuel Seabury, although he didn't know it was Samuel Seabury because Seabury himself used a pseudonym. He used the name A Farmer. So Hamilton responded with this letter called A Friend of America, and then Seabury, still anonymously, they didn't know who, the two of them didn't know who they were talking to. Seabury responded, and Hamilton then published this paper called A Farmer Refuted, which he published under the name A Sincere Friend of America. Apparently he thought a friend of America wasn't enough. So that's the history of it. And it was very common in those days for people to write under pseudonyms or to publish anonymously for a number of reasons, including that they wanted to not necessarily have their political disagreements overflow into the social areas where they may interact or business where they may interact. They wanted to sometimes not have their you know, harsh, plain language said to one another interfere with their ability to reach compromises on other political matters. And, and above all, there was sort of a concept that readers should look at the arguments involved and that by publishing things under pseudonyms or anonymously, you forced people to deal with the arguments rather than to attack the messenger, rather than to attack the speaker. There's a good chance that the United States would not exist were it not for anonymous speech. I think the, the role of Thomas Paine's writings in particular, Common Sense and then The Crisis, were very, very important. And you wouldn't have wanted to publish those under your own name in, in that time because you would have risked perhaps your own death. And great job on that, Alex. And what a piece of history. And by the way, it's not just speech. People's donations to causes, well, those are private matters. And we're going to be getting into the NAACP in the state of Alabama. Is there were people in Alabama, any white people who supported the cause of desegregation, and they gave to the NAACP. And at a certain point in time, the state of Alabama came into the NAACP and said, we want those names. And we know why the state wanted those names. They wanted to out those people, have the Klan deter those people from doing the right thing. There's a history of anonymous speech, anonymous donations, and my goodness, the ultimate anonymous act, the vote. 
Anonymous speech. Alexander's anonymous speech. The Federalist Papers themselves, folks. Written under anonymous names by three great Americans. More on this subject. It's a big one. Here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories about everything in all walks of American life. And this story is the story of a comedian, and we've told a few before. Stephen Wright is most famous for his slow, deadpan one-liners. Born and raised in Massachusetts, he cites comic George Carlin as his main influence. His 1985 comedy album, I Have a Pony, was recorded at Wolfgang's in San Francisco and Park West in Chicago. Thanks. I used to be a parking attendant in Boston at Logan Airport. I parked jets. They let me go, though, because I kept locking the keys in them. One day, I was on an 86-foot stepladder trying to get in the window with a coat hanger. (laughs) I was arrested today for scalping low numbers at the deli. (laughs) Sold a number three for 28 bucks. (laughs) I was once walking through the forest alone, and a tree fell right in front of me. And I didn't hear it. (laughs) I used to be a narrator for bad mimes. (laughs) I live in a house that's on the median strip of a highway. Very nice grassy area, I like it. The only thing I don't like about it is when I leave my driveway, I have to be going 60 miles an hour. <laughs> I have a microwave fireplace. I can lay down in front of the fire for the evening in eight minutes. Well, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? Sometimes you can't hear me, it's because sometimes I'm in parentheses. (laughs) Are there any questions? Feeling kind of hyper. About four years ago, I was... No, it was yesterday. 
went to the hardware store, I bought some used paint. It was in the shape of a hose. I also bought some batteries, but they weren't included. So I had to buy them again. I had trouble going home from there because I had parked my car in a tow-away zone. When I came back, the entire area was gone. One time the police stopped me for speeding and they said, Don't you know the speed limit is 55 miles an hour? I said, yeah, I know, but I wasn't going to be out that long. Before we get back to this legendary comedy routine, let's hear from Stephen about his writing style. The audience doesn't care about style or anything. They just care whether it's funny. Because I was, you know, I had more normalish material. 80% of it was like, what I'm known now, but even within that, they would if they would laugh at some of it and wouldn't laugh at other things. So they, it wasn't how I was doing it; it was the actual piece of material. And I, I just thought abstractly. That's just how I wrote. I didn't think a, a plan. I mean, that that type of material was just funny to me. I didn't think about how I talked. I didn't think about how I looked. I didn't think about anything. All I thought about was material. So then when I went on stage, I was scared because public speaking, I was so nervous and I had an extra blank face because I was afraid. And I was trying to say the joke the right way and trying to think of what was the next joke. It's very serious to communicate stuff to the audience. And then that just like went together, kind of meshed, like just by accident. Wright knew from a young age that he wanted to be a stand-up comedian when he would often dream about performing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Well, I started watching it. was like 14 years old. I was watching it every night, and my fantasy became to, to go on that when I was like 17. It was like, that would be, you know how a kid wants to be a baseball player or an astronaut or something? I wanted to... That was my dream, not knowing that it would ever happen or anything. So then I'm in the club and stuff, and a guy from The Tonight Show saw me in Cambridge, Peter LaSalle. I was doing it three years, and he saw me in the club, and then three weeks later I was on the show. So I'm 26, and I'm there. It was totally surrealistic. He was really nice. He talked to me before I went on. He was very... You know, I, he could have been saying, we're going to axe murder you and we're going to put your body in different states after the show. And I would have said, yes, that's, that's fine. That's fantastic. And so, you know, that's still the highlight of my entire career. I've done stuff after that, but that's my favorite thing ever. Now let's go back to Stephen Wright's first comedy album, I Have a Pony. I went to court for a parking ticket. I pleaded insanity. <laughs> I said, Your Honor, why would anyone in their right mind park in the passing lane? (laughs) Then I asked him if he knew what time it is, and he told me, and I said, No further questions. (laughs) I'm going to court next week. I've been selected for jury duty. 
kind of an insane case. 6,000 ants dressed up as rice and robbed a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> I don't think they did it. <laughs> I know a few of them and they wouldn't do anything like that. Years ago, I worked in a natural organic health food store in Seattle, Washington. One day, a man walked in and he said, If I melt dry ice, can I swim without getting wet? <laughs> Two days later, I was fired for eating cotton candy and drinking straight Bosco on the job. Well, I figured I'd leave the area because I had no ties there anyway except for this girl I was seeing. We had conflicting attitudes. I really wasn't into meditation. She really wasn't into being alive. <laughs> I told her I knew when I was going to die because my birth certificate has an expiration date on it. photograph on my license taken out of focus on purpose. So when the police do stop me, they go, here, you can go. One night I stayed up all night playing poker with tarot cards. I got a full house and four people died. telescope on the peephole on my door so I can see who's at the door for 200 miles. <laughs> Who is it? Who is it going to be when you get here? I got an answering machine for my phone now when I'm not home and someone calls me up, they hear a recording of a busy signal. My house is supposed to get seven years bad luck, but my lawyer thinks he can get me five. <laughs> I like to skate on the other side of the ice. I like to reminisce with people I don't know. Granted, it takes longer. I like to fill my tub up with water, then turn the shower on and act like I'm in a submarine that's been hit. I hate when my foot falls asleep during the day, because that means it's going to be up all night. And that's the work of Stephen Wright. We celebrate his work, his life here on Our American Stories. We've also done the same for Steve Martin, Don Rickles, Cal Burnett, Lucille Ball, Mitch Hedberg, and Joan Rivers. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to what we did with all of them. You'll hear some of their routines. You'll hear from them personally about how they do what they do. 
Stephen Wright, his material, his story here on Our American Stories.